The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right. We're continuing on with this uh, further exploration of the Lord's Prayer. Um, we finished up with all the petitions, and now we're into this section on liturgy. We spent last week talking a bit about the, uh, the, high, the highest form of prayer, which is what? Anybody remember? Ah, it's wordless prayer. It's contemplation. Um, it, is, uh, it is, as St. Teresa of Avila says, uh, loving intercourse with God on a mystical level. Um, and so uh, contemplation is, it takes, it takes a good, good bit of time uh, to cultivate a life of contemplation, but it's very worthwhile. Um, contemplation tends to be wordless. Um, it actually is usually wordless. Um, we're not directing any kind of words to God in contemplation. Um, we're merely uh, enjoying his presence. Um, there's a wonderful story that I like to use to, to illustrate what contemplation's like, and it's from... Uh, the, in, in, the, in the Roman Catholic tradition in France, the, the, patron saint, the patron saint of parish priests was this lovely, rather poorly, well, he wasn't very smart, uh, this, this priest called the Curé d'Ar, the, 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 the parish priest of the town of Ar, and uh, he, was a, he was just a, a very holy man. And uh, he was walking through the church one day, and he saw this peasant sitting on a chair looking at this, uh, looking at this statue, and uh, no words in his mouth, just kind of staring, staring blankly. And it was, it was time to close up the church, and the, the priest said, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> and he said, he looks at me, I look at him. That was it. Um, this high form of contemplation in which we, we, we look upon God. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about... Um, about this. Let's go to question 237. We actually, no, let's go to 238. Question 238. Of what should you be certain in prayer? I should be certain that God hears my prayers. I should also be certain that in response he will grant me all that I actually need by his wisdom, in his time, and for his glory. Um, we should be certain that God hears prayers. Um, we believe in an, om, in an omniscient God who hears everything, who knows everything, who knows all. Um, and it's God's pleasure to hear our prayers, right? I mean, this is, this is, this is what we read in, the, in that last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, that, that God is a loving Father who hears the requests of his children. Um, uh, I mean, I love this verse, Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. Uh, you know, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to those who, to, to you who ask? Um, I'm not a great father, but I definitely hear my children when they ask me for things. And a lot of times I say, no, are you kidding me? <laughs> and it's because I'm a good father that I don't grant their requests, right? Um, uh, you know, when they ask me for the latest video game, and I'm saying, are you kidding me? No. Uh, <laughs> the answer's no. And, it, and then why? Because I'm a good father, and I love you, <laughs> and I want you to grow up well. Um, 
You know, can we have can we have ice cream for dinner? No, uh, but but at the same time, uh, we want to give good gifts to our children. I mean, we we know how to do this. It, it pains us to not be able to do it. But God is able, and God is loving, and God wills this. We should be certain that in that in response to our prayers, He will grant me all that I actually need. Um, and it's it's very difficult in the modern era to know the difference between what we actually need and what we what we want. Um, we feel this incredible sense of entitlement, um, almost to the point where when we don't get what we feel entitled to, we feel like God's abandoned us. <laughs> and it's, it's a very difficult thing. Um, and I'm not belittling it at all. I'm saying it is a difficult thing because, um, because so much of our identity today is wrapped up in having. Um, and yet, um, we actually always, and, and we usually have more than we ever need, um, but he will grant me all that I actually need. And this is why the Lord's Prayer trains us to pray for daily bread, um, what we actually need. Not what we want, not what we desire, but what we actually need. Um, Not only that, but by his wisdom, um, when we ask of the Father, we're asking one who is infinitely wise uh, and who knows what's actually good for us. And sometimes the answer is, not right now. You couldn't handle it right now. <laughs> um, I remember being in college, and, and all I wanted was to date Jenny Gibson. Oh, this is going to go on the podcast. That's very embarrassing. <laughs> That's all I wanted in life, right? All I wanted. And, 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 I was, and I was angry that that didn't happen. And now I look back, and I say, oh, my goodness. Everything worked out so well. Like, um, she's very happy. I'm very happy. We, you know, we've both gotten married, and everything's great. You know, like what, what? And and it was that God, in His wisdom, was 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 absolutely wanted to grant my desire, but just not then. Then would have been a disaster. But 2005, 2006 was perfect timing. Perfect timing. Um, and that's where we get to in His time, in His time. Um, you know, we can very often be like Veruca Salt, right? I want it now. <laughs> and, it, and, it's a, and it's a terrible disease of our age that, um, that, that we want it now. Um, and if anything, one of the most amazing, miraculous, uh, almost um, uh, things of our age has been that Amazon has actually gotten away with not giving you what you want now. You have to wait two days. <laughs> And even that, people say, oh, I'm not sure that's a long time. Uh, and, and that's the only reason Target still exists. I'll say that. Um, is because people are willing to wait two days to get something at a lower price. And, but but we're, we learned this, that um, delaying gratification in prayer is an amazing thing. Um, to keep praying, to keep, to keep pursuing God. We, we have to be like the widow um, who, who just badgers the judge. Um, and very often when we really don't need, we, we just give up. Um, but, but God teaches, God asks us to pray without ceasing. Um, and, and what happens when we pray in that way is we pray for his glory. Um, and this isn't just about like wanting a bigger house or wanting a nicer car. This is about things that are often at the center of, of who we think we are, or who we think we need to be. Um, um, things that touch on our very identity. Um, 
for some of you, you're academics, and you say, please accept this paper, you know, whatever nameless journal you're submitting it to. <laughs> and you pray that God would allow this paper to make its way through the academic journals, and you think, oh. Uh, and, but, you, but, but you realize it's more than just getting a paper published for the benefit of your academic community. This is about your identity as a person that this has come on. Um, because you know that you'll feel the failure if it doesn't get published. And this is a tough thing to see. Um, um, I've often realized in my own life that I've had so much personally wrapped up in the success of whatever church I'm leading that for it to not thrive would be a personal tragedy to me. And I recognize that through my life I've, I've, I've served churches in my own pride and arrogance because of that. Um, but when I start to pray for the church to thrive, an amazing thing happens. When it does, I think, well, I didn't do that. <laughs> that was God's work. Um, and, and instead, what I think is not, I don't get more pride. In fact, I feel like more of a sinner. <laughs> and I come to a greater recognition of my own, of my own unworthiness. Um, and this is the reality of what happens when you pray rightly and when you receive rightly. You come to a greater understanding of your own sinfulness. Um, and this is often one of the biggest surprises of all, is that uh, for the Christian, when you, when, you, when you see yourself thriving in life, um, you, you, you don't wind up thinking, oh man, I'm just doing so well. You think, oh, you know, you're like Peter in the boat. We're gonna, this is the sermon for this morning, but I'm, I'm giving it away to you, but here it is. It's, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. You look at the big catch and you think, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. This is, this is how God intends life to be. Um, it's not that, our, not that our success builds us up, but that it, it, it brings us to a deeper awareness of our own unworthiness and our own fault. Okay. End my sermon there. I'll give it to you again later. Um, what should you remember when prayers seem to be unanswered? God always hears my prayers and answers them in his wisdom and in his own time, sometimes withholding blessings for my discipline and sometimes giving better than I ask. Um, through the centuries, the saints have instructed us in the ways of, of why God doesn't answer prayers. Um, and the answer may simply be that it's not time yet. That's clear enough. The answer may, may be that it's the better part of wisdom for you not to have a certain thing. But it can also be that um, you're an obstinate child, and to give, would, give you what you want would only entertain your obstinance. Um, you're, you're, you are... Uh, you are acting in a way that is, that is uh, that's not good. And for God to give you what you want would be to indulge that. Um, I know this now as a father. I didn't know it as, I didn't know it when I was in college. I know this now big time, right? For me to give my children great blessings, you know? Um, and sometimes it's horrible, you know? You're, you're going out for ice cream and two kids don't get it. And you think, oh my goodness, I'm gonna put up with the screaming and the crying because of this, but it's worth it. Because what we know is that our children's character is being formed by this. They start to realize, well, yeah, of course not. <laughs> um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get good blessings when I'm being obstinate. That's how life is. Um, so withholding blessings for my, for my discipline is an important part of how we, how we think about prayer. And it's why the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray for the forgiveness of sins as we pray for good blessings, as we pray for daily bread. These two, go to, they go together. Um, so that's important. Okay. How should you pray in times of suffering? I should join my sufferings to those of Jesus Christ, trusting in the sufficiency of his grace 
and joyfully assured that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Love this quotation, this lengthy quotation from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, we, are, we, we have a society that lives under the, under the really very real lie that, uh, that suffering is a waste of your time and energy. That if God really loved you, he wouldn't allow you to suffer. Um, if God really was a kind and magnanimous God, then you would never suffer anything. You wouldn't suffer a darn thing. And you'd be happy and well-adjusted, and wouldn't that be great? And, and your whole life would be like Pottery Barn Kids. You know, you'd have that room. Uh, and <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm channeling my fatherhood. Uh, I do tell my kids this. It's like, well, we don't live in the Pottery Barn Kids catalog. We live in our house, and, you know, that's how it is. <laughs> and your room is as clean as you want it to be, and that's just how it is. Uh, <laughs> but, but suffering is an immense um, is an immense benefit. And the saints actually teach us a way of actually asking for certain sufferings because they know that it's by those sufferings that they will join Christ, that they'll be joined to him. So how should we do this? I should join my sufferings to those of Jesus Christ. Paul talks about, um, in a very odd verse, making up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And you might say, well, what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Nothing. <laughs> and, and what's he saying here? He's saying that clearly my suffering has value too, and it can be used for great good in this world. Um, the martyrs teach us that by their suffering and their deaths, um, they offer up prayers to God that, that can literally change the world, um, that can lead people to faith. So we, we do this trusting in the sufficiency of his grace. Um, if you try to endure suffering by your own power, uh, you will be like, uh, you'll feel like a cosmic punching bag. You'll feel like you just, you just take this hit over and over and over again. But when the Christian trusts in the sufficiency of God's grace in the midst of suffering, um, it means that our means of enduring that suffering is God's gifts and not our own power. Um, and this happens not just, you know, don't think big things. I mean, don't think like, oh, yeah, if I ever get cancer, then I'll say that. No, you won't. <laughs> not if you don't do it in little sufferings. <laughs> um, you know, you might say, well, if I ever, you know, have to declare bankruptcy, then I can talk about trusting in the sufficiency of God's grace. Well, no. The reality of the Christian life is that every Christian has a cross to bear. This is the, this is the heart of the call to discipleship. Jesus says what? Take up your cross and follow me. You hear what he's saying? Is he denying that he has a cross? Not at all. Um, in fact, he's, saying, he's in a sense saying, because I have a cross, you got one too. So pick it up and bear it. Um, and, and all the while, giving the grace to be able to do that. Go ahead. Someone starts to us, right, right, right. Um, well, I mean, you know better than most why people starve to death. Well, I'm just saying, right? Like, we know why people starve to death in this world, right? It's injustice. It's not. Listen, the reason people starve to death in this world is not that they're sort of, you know, 
we, we, we have famines in this world, and the reality of it is um, there's, there's an immense capacity to feed the entire planet if we, if we so desire to do that. Um, and I don't, I don't believe that God's sort of sitting there and saying, well, you know, uh, I could act now miraculously to make sure that all this happens, make sure that everybody's taken care of. We know that uh, injustice has consequences, and people die because of it. Um, you know, nature works that way. Um, and you might say, well, that doesn't seem to be an answer to prayer. Um, I've known people through this, through this, through lots of means that have that have suffered so greatly that we would say, "How did you? How did you keep your faith in the midst of that suffering?" Who prayed even for their own lives to be preserved, and it hasn't happened. And and how do we reconcile that? Well, I mean, I think we can say that uh, we can say two things. One is we live in a we live in a broken creation. creation where things don't work the way they're supposed to. Um, and that's why um, the Lord's Prayer also includes, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer include, includes a recognition that God's will isn't done on earth as the way it should be. That's a tough thing. That's a tough admission, right? That's kind of a theologically loaded thing to say, is right? <laughs> that we recognize that doesn't happen. Um, and I think we have to balance that, too, with the fact that, you know, is it the active will of God that people die of hunger? No. But we can also recognize that, that certain things are permitted to happen within the, within, our, within the universe that are not actively willed by God, but happen nonetheless, um, because, precisely because we live in a broken universe. Go ahead. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing in Scripture is that people are always praying for judgment when things are not adding up. Um, and so I will say this, having known people who've been, been starving, um, uh, I mean, I, I'll never forget going to Rwanda and meeting people that had lost their entire family in the genocide, and they sit there and say, well, why did this happen? We prayed this wouldn't happen, and it happened anyway. Um, and there are two things that happen. One is they cry out to God for justice, which in Rwanda they didn't get. Um, but at the, at, the, at the core, this is, what's, this is what's really amazing about people who've been through that, is they say, they say this. Because of sin, this universe is broken. Our world is broken. And what it does is, instead of it defeating them, it builds in them the Christian virtue of hope. Um, and that's often where people don't go. They say, well, because all this bad stuff happens, you know, forget it. Not worth it. Not worth the time. We prayed and nothing happened. Um, but I will say this, just speaking strongly and straight into the midst of this. There are more things, there are greater goods in this world than the preservation of our lives. That's what the Christian tradition of martyrdom teaches us. Just straight up. It teaches us that there are more things, there are, there are greater things than our own lives. Um, and that's a really hard thing to hold on to. But, but I think we can see all that clearly. Like we can see people die because of injustice, they die because of sin, 
they die because, um, you know, there are, there are societal ills that could be solved. But it's also true at the same time that, um, that a lot of the evil in this world is permitted to continue on. Um, and we look forward to a day when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, that's what we pray for. We, we pray that that will be realized. The other thing I'd say, too, is Christians have always understood that they are on this incredible mission to undermine all of that disaster. So that's the other part of it, too, and that's one of the things that builds hope, is you say, well, okay, so people are starving. What do we do about it? Um, <laughs> what, does, what does that prayer mean for us? Um, they look and they say, well, you know, people are, people are dying uh, in, in genocide, and they're dying in the following ways, and nobody seems to do anything about it. What are we going to do? And then they go do it. Um, and, and, you know, it's very popular to bash the church these days. It's like, oh, the church has done so many horrible evils, and like, I mean, let me just say it. Add up the evils of the church versus that of socialism in the, 19, in the 20th century, it's not even a contest. Just in one century. It's not, a, not even a contest. Um, it's... Uh, it's a mess. Um, but, but the reality of it is we wouldn't have a hospital system in this world if it weren't for the church. And we would not have this general concept in our society that you're supposed to aid the poor. Um, that when people get sick, you're not supposed to run from town. But you know that's a Christian idea, right? That, that it's actually good to stay with the, with the sick when they're dying, right? That's a Christian idea. Romans didn't think that. They thought, run! It's the plague. Get out of town. <laughs> and one of the most revolutionary things about, about Christians was they stayed. Go ahead. Sure. Oh, my. <laughs> what do we do with that? I've often, I've often thought that because, you know, you pray the daily office long enough and, you, and you, you find yourself praying those psalms and you think, Oh my goodness, you know, I'm going to turn into a monster if I keep reading these. Uh, yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think we have to come to terms with well, I'll put it this way: uh, we we are we are uh, we are we gr we grow up with this kind of um, how should I put this? We grew up being told, you know, good people don't do that; they don't even think that. Um, they don't think things like that. Um, ancient people, not so much. They're completely fine with that. They're completely fine with that category of like, yeah, we're going to go kill all, we're going to kill him, and we're going to kill his children, and that's how it's going to be. Um, But I will say this, like, if you haven't thought something approaching that, you've never had an enemy, and you got to deal with that. I mean, I'll just say this, like, Jesus' assumption is that we will have enemies that we have to pray for. Jesus' assumption is that we'll have enemies that we're angry at. Um, and, uh, but I would also say, too, far better to pray a prayer like that than to actually do something like that. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, there's something cathartic about it. 
And I'll just admit it fully that I've actually prayed those psalms very cathartically and been like, oh, yes, that's good. Like, that felt good. <laughs> but but didn't do it. I mean, I wasn't going out and doing it. Um, I would say another thing, too, which is that uh, psychologists teach us that, um, and I you know, I don't trot out Jung on a daily basis, but you've got to get in touch with your shadow self, this part of you that's that has this capacity for unbelievable evil. And the more you try to suppress that, that shadow, it gets angry. And it gets really unsettling. Um, so there's something about the Psalms as prayers that allows us to come to terms with that darkness that's in us. Uh, because it is, right? I mean, the reality of it is you push somebody far enough and they will do things that are evil. We know this. I mean, there have been TV shows about this. <laughs> I just learned about one called Push in the UK where the idea is they, they take two people and they put them, they, and the idea is they take people who are uh, more or less kind of pliant to social norms and... <clears throat> They kind of train them to follow certain cues, and then they put them up on a high building, and, and there's a net they don't see. But, and the person's standing, goes the, and, and they just start hurling insults and see when the guy will just push them. And it's amazing how often it happens. Um, because we have this capacity, and we don't want to think about it, right? We really don't want to think about this capacity, but we have it. Um, we're, we're, we were supposed to be talking about suffering here. This is, <laughs> but it is true nonetheless that, that I would say very strongly, um, you know, and this, this is, man, psychologists have proved this over and over and over again, that the more in touch you are with your capacity for, for great harm and great evil, um, the less you are tempted to it. And it's very strange, but that's just who we are as human beings. We know this. Um, well, we know it also because who hasn't met a veteran of a war. I knew some World War II vets that had done some horrible things, and they talked about it openly. And they were the sweetest men you'd ever meet. Well, why? Because they got in touch with that capacity. They knew it. They knew how, how bad they could be, um, how much damage they could cause. So leave that there. Let's just say that that that... that this is a, we're getting right into the heart of the question here, but, but um, on the other end, which is that we do endure suffering, right? I mean, suffering is an, is an important part of human life, um, and, uh, and, you know, we, we have to come to terms with it. What does it mean? Um, and Paul's words are not trite here. Suffering produces endurance. Do we believe that? Yes. Anyone who's run to the point where they're going to throw up or anyone who's, who's, uh, who has just hammered it out training for a marathon and they've dealt with all the pains and all the aches and all of that, they know that that actually produces endurance. Um, anyone who's played a sport, that they've had to go the whole game and play the whole game uh, and they've gone from being whipped by it to actually being able to do it, knows this, that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. What is character? Character here is, is, is the, the integration of the self such that, um, that um, you know, 
you're not meeting multiple personalities of myself. You're, you're, I'm integrated. I am one. I am whole. Um, when we are able to endure through suffering, we become whole, whole people. And character produces hope. Because if we have character, then we meet trials and we meet all kinds of suffering and we meet all kinds of other things and we're not thrown off base by it. Um, we're the same in good times and in bad. Um, and hope does not put us to shame. I love this bit from Paul. <laughs> hope does not put us to shame. Well, what does put us to shame? This kind of waffling that we experience where, you know, we're very, uh, we're very, um, we're very flippant people on the whole. Would you agree with that? Right? I mean, it's like, I'm totally happy, right? I'm totally, I'm a good guy. I'm a really good guy until my house burns down. <laughs> and until you're the one who burned it down. Then a different part of me comes out. You know, I'm a really, I'm a really sweet person. But when my bank account's drained, I am crazy frenetic. Do you see the point? Um, if we have character that's been produced by this suffering, um, we, we don't get thrown around. Um, and, and we won't be put to shame. All right. <clears throat> what obstacles hinder, may hinder your prayers? My prayers may be hindered by distractions, laziness, pride, selfishness, discouragement, sin, and lack of faith. Um, we all know that prayers are hindered by distractions, yes. And I think I've shared this in the past that uh, uh, my favorite advice here is from Teresa of Avila who says, you treat distractions in prayer like you treat a little child who bursts into adult conversation. Um, have any of you had to do this in the past? Okay. You, you, say, you say something to the kid, you know, you say, just put your hand on my knee, all right? And when I'm done talking to my friend, then I'll, then I'll turn to you and you can talk. You, do this, you can do the same thing in prayer. You say, to the distraction, you say, I know I've got to get my oil changed today, and that's going to happen, and I'm going to do it at about 9.30. But for now, I'm praying, and I'm not concerned about what kind of other problems they're going to find with my car when I take in the oil change, because that will happen. It's going to happen at 9.30. For now, I'm praying. Do you see the point? Um, I know I've got to deliver this paper. I know I've got to do this. I know I've got to do that. And it will happen when it's supposed to happen. Um, but for now, I'm going to pray. Um, laziness is a major problem in prayer, which is that, um, uh, well, it all starts like this. It's, I'm lying in bed, and I'm nice and warm, and I don't want to be unwarm, so I'm not going to get out of bed. So I'm going to try to pray on my back in bed under the covers. How well does that go? It just doesn't work. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a mess. And in fact... We'll go back to the saints again. They tell us how to do this. They say, you know what? When you're lying on your back in bed, don't bother to pray because you're not going to. Just tell yourself, as soon as my feet hit the floor, then I'm going to pray. It's a magnificent thing that happens. If you know that as soon as your feet hit the floor, you're going to pray, then when you get out of bed, that's what you're going to do. It's an amazing thing. Um, and there are lots of ways to fix this up, too. It's like, well, I'm not going to sit in the most comfy chair in my house and try to pray. I'm going to sit on a, and what I recommend is if you pray sitting down, you sit in a straight back chair, sitting up with the best posture that your grandmother could possibly beat into you, and, 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 you, and you pray that way. Um, sometimes our prayers are hindered by pride. 
we say, all right, Lord, I know that I've completely ignored you and I know that I'm making judgments about my own life that I have no right to make, but now I'm gonna try to pray and we'll just put all that aside for a moment and I'm gonna try to pray. How's that work? Listen, we can't even talk to our parents when it's like that. It doesn't work. So the, the way is to say, I'm done doing things my way. That's why we begin with confession um, in, in morning and evening prayer. It's why we do all kinds of other practices. Is An examination of conscience goes a long way in establishing a, a vital prayer life. Okay. Selfishness. How does selfishness hinder prayer? <laughs> it's all about me. <laughs> and now I'm going to try to make it about you, Lord. <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, and, and what we have to do is we have to, uh, well, the, the only way around selfishness in prayer, I think, is, is fasting. I mean, disciplines of fasting will kick your selfishness out the door um, like nothing else. Um, discouragement. Oh, have you ever been so discouraged that you can't pray? Oh, I mean, yes, definitely. Um, What we find, however, is that a lot of the cause of our discouragement is that we haven't sustained a healthy prayer life. Um, and what I would say to this is get back to, um, if you haven't ever done it before, I mean, sometimes it's that when I'm super encouraged, I can pray extemporaneously and do just fine. When I'm discouraged, what happens? No, 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 I don't mean any of that. So you pick up a prayer book. <laughs> This is an amazing thing that happens is you pick up somebody else's prayers because they're the church's prayers and they're yours and you pray. Um, we, can, we can very often be hindered in our, in our prayers because of sin. And the surefire way to kick sin out the door is to make a, make a confession um, and say, I'm done with all that. I'm not doing that anymore. I've done it my way. I don't want to do it my way anymore because it fails all the time. And you just set it down. Um, you get up on the spiritual latrine and you evacuate, as, as a retreat conductor said this past, this past weekend. And it's great, right? And then you just leave it behind. Right? Do you worry about what happens to your waste? No. Why would you? It's the city of Waco's problem now. Thanks be to God, right? And you just let go. You don't worry about it. And I know I'm being gross, but it's for a reason, right? Because you just say, I don't want to deal with it anymore, and I'm not going to. If you hang on to it, you'll get sick and you'll die. So, offer that to you. And a lack of faith. Um, well, how do we get our faith back? Hmm. If your faith's been on the ropes, there's only one way to get it back. Habit. Um, habits, 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 habits. I mean, if you want to brush your teeth and floss every day, twice a day, how do you do it? You resolve in your mind. You say, every day for a month, morning and evening, I'm going to do this thing that I hate to do because it drives me crazy, but I'm just going to do it. And what do you find at the end of a month? Oh, gosh, I couldn't imagine not flossing every day. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to be some sort of Neanderthal to not do that every day, twice a day. And that's how, you, that's how habits work. They form you, right? They form your affections. Um, and, and one of the problems with, with 
uh, with faith. And the reason that faith kind of can, can take a hit is that um, we don't undertake the postures and habits of faith. Um, and one of those is just to pray daily, to undertake these disciplines. Look, you know, as soon as I get out of bed and my feet hit the floor, I'm going to pray. All right. Should we do a bit of orientation to the liturgy? We can do this for about, I think, about 10 minutes, and then we'll pick it back up, and we won't even do any more catechism questions, because after we, after we do this, we'll go to the liturgy section. Should we go up to the chancel, and I'll just kind of give, well, actually, let's stay here for a bit, and then we'll go, and we'll, we'll kind of walk through this place. All right. <clears throat> um, just to give you a little orientation to this church and how it was built and why it was built this way, um, this church was built by the Waco architect, um, Milton, uh, Milton Scott, in 1917. Everything from here, you can feel the transition in the floor. Everything from here back was built in 1917. Um, this church was built by, uh, by um, uh, Scandinavian Lutherans uh, who uh, had a very clean, ascetic sense about how things ought to be in their church. And they started putting in these stained glass windows with lots of color. Um, and, uh, and beams and things like that. Um, they wanted this to be um, not only a place of their, um, their, their, their worship as Christians and as Lutherans in particular, but they wanted this to be um, a place that, that exuded their, their culture. And therefore, that's why, you know, Jesus looks like he could have been picked out of a um, Scandinavian catalog um, but, but there he is. Um, the, uh, the loft um, uh, was made kind of for overflow seating, and that's not really a common feature, and in, in, in it's just kind of a good option to have. But look up um, at these beams, which are fake, but they're really cool, I think. Um, church architecture very early on started to take on this idea that the church is a ship. Um, it's a ship. It's a it's a ship of salvation. Um, and I'm, in fact, in the gospel reading, you'll hear that today. That the church is a ship. The church is a boat. The church is um, is um, is a uh, you know very tied in with all these maritime imagery. Um, and in many cases, people were taking the hulls of ships and building churches out of them. So this, this became very normal. This was supposed to be that the church is the, the bark of salvation. Um, uh, and so that's why we call this whole area the nave. It's very tied to naval imagery. Um, and that's where we are right now. We're in the nave. Um, if we move, let's, let's all come up this way and then we'll kind of walk you through it. So where do the early where do the early Christians worship? You should all know this. Did they have buildings like this? They had homes. Yeah, they had homes, uh, and they also uh, early on in the Acts of the Apostles they worshipped also in synagogues and in the temple. So these two kind of realities of, or actually three realities of synagogue, temple, and home all come together. Um, and uh, this church is kind of a, a a mutt of churches, so we'll kind of try to describe it as much as possible, but. When, um, when the medieval church starts to come to a number of things happen, um, a number of things happening all at once, 
uh, is that uh, in the West, the church becomes more and more monastic. So lots of churches have monastic um, centers and, and they start to do some things that are very monastic. And one of them is because you're chanting the Psalms back and forth at each other, side to side, they have these things called choirs. And the choir is where the monks sit in choir and they pray the Psalms seven times a day. So you have these opposing choirs. One side speaks to the other side, and that's why you have this whole raised area up here. And we also call this the chancel. It's the place where the chanting takes place. Um, and, uh, you know, so when we pray morning prayer up here uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we pray facing each other, um, which is an amazing thing. Um, if you've ever tried to pray facing your neighbor uh, and with a straight face, uh, it can be very difficult sometimes. Uh, but it, but it's, it, it is to say that they do that for a reason, and the reason is that um, the choir becomes <clears throat> kind of the beating heart of those parish churches. People hear choirs, and especially when it comes to cathedrals, cathedrals have monastic choirs that produce music that is absolutely heavenly. And the rule in church architecture is what the cathedral does, everybody else wants to do. Because, um, well, church clergy and bishops have uh, edifice complexes and they constantly want to build a better church than their friends. Uh, and so, so they constantly build it up bigger and bigger and bigger and they want more and more stuff and they want it to look nicer and have more, you know, have more features. So even parish churches started to have choirs um, because why wouldn't you? In an English church, in an English parish church, you would also have this incredible feature called a rood screen or a rood beam. Rood is the Anglo-Saxon word for cross, and someday it's my intention to build a beam across this part with a cross on it, on the top. Because here's the theology. This is where we get to the church mirroring the church's theology. Is We all labor away in the nave. We're rowing the ship in the nave. And we hope to, by the, by the merits of Christ on the cross, ascend to the heavenly. Um, so through the cross, under the cross, we ascend into the heavenly choir, where we join uh, David and the choirs of heaven. That's the idea. Um, so if we move up even further, you can all come up here. <clears throat> so we've got nave, we've got chancel, and then this part here is called the sanctuary. Now, many of you grew up in churches where this whole dang thing was the sanctuary. Do you know why it was called the sanctuary? Ah, this is Protestant virtue signaling. Uh, it's basically this. It's, hey, if we're Protestants, we're all priests. And therefore, the whole place where the priests gather is called what? The sanctuary. There's no distinction between various parties. There's no, there's no such thing as ordination even, really, in a lot of Protestant churches. So the idea is the whole thing is the whole thing is the sanctuary. But here, note what happens. You ascend the altar. Um, this is holy space here. The whole thing's holy space, but this is really holy. Um, and, uh, and it's set apart. Um, so I don't hold meetings up here. You know, I don't kind of have vestry meetings up in this space. Um, although it might, might, might be a good idea when there's tension, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's to say, this is where, and, and here's the other thing that starts to happen. One of the things that starts to happen is, the church's clergy start to say, okay, well, we know that we have our, our weekly Eucharist in the church on Sunday, on Sunday mornings, um, but there are a lot of people that can't make it because they're sick, so what do we do? We reserve some sacrament away somewhere in the church, and we keep it in the holiest place in the church to take out to the poor, to take out to those who are sick, to take out to those who are dying. So 
that's happened, and, the, and we have a tabernacle where the sacrament's kept for that purpose. Um, and here's what happens. So they have this wonderful practical arrangement, and then people start to say, you know, if Christ is present in the tabernacle, then I probably ought to go visit him regularly. So people in the sixth, seventh centuries are saying, oh, you know, I'm just going to go into the church and pray. Um, and so we have that in place. And in order to denote that, put a, put a light there, a lamp. So that lamp is burning all the time because Christ is in the sacrament, reposed in the tabernacle. Um, let's say a little bit about altar rails. Um, in the medieval church, one of the problems is that it's, it's a very pastoral society. Um, lots of people are bringing their sheep into the church. Um, do you know why they bring sheep to church? Okay. Well, they do it because that's the offering for the week. If you're going to give to the church, you bring it in in kind. So you might bring a goat, you might bring a sheep. Um, and to keep them from roaming around up to the, they put a gate in, a very simple gate, and this would be it. Um, and people just started kneeling at that gate uh, to receive. In Anglicanism, uh, they had actually pulled the altar rails out in the, in the Reformation um, because they wanted to blow away those distinctions. But they found that it wasn't actually that practical. And so uh, in, the se in the early 17th century, they put them all back. And they said, we, we need rails again because people want to kneel when they receive. Um, so all of that was there. Um, this was actually part of the Lutheran uh, church's furniture, and we put new cushions down and, and installed it. Um, but it had never been here. It was always down there. Um, and we, but we want, what we wanted to create was this sense of ascent. Up, and can you feel that? Can anyone feel that ascent when you come up? Like, it's a really amazing thing. Um, a couple things as well. Um, Christian liturgies were always, always, until the last century, celebrated facing east primarily. And only when the priest wanted to invite people to pray with him would he turn to them and invite them to pray. So when I turn around and say, the Lord be with you, I'm doing two things at once. I'm saying, we're all going to pray, so the Lord be with you. And you say, better be with you too. <laughs> and then we turn together and we, and we face. Now, this church faces south um, because that's where the land faces. Um, but in most medieval churches, they face east towards the rising sun. Um, in many English parish churches, they have a big stained glass window there. So that in the morning on a Sunday, that the light shines straight through that window and it creates this glorious effect. Um, it's like heaven. That's the purpose. That's what it's supposed to be like. Um, in this sense, what we did is we just we took this. This is the original altar from the from the Lutheran Church. We just refurbished it, and and it had had this image of the resurrection in it that was a lithograph. And Sean Oswald, an artist in our parish, painted this image of the resurrection. Well. This was intentionally composed, and I want to kind of walk you through it. I can't do as good a job as he, as he has uh, of, of explaining it. But the image is taken from Luke's account of the resurrection. Um, it's, it's, there's a lot of artistic freedom taken with it. But the composition is really important. And the composition is of Christ bearing his, uh, this is taken from this uh, patristic homily on Holy Saturday. He, he's bearing this victorious weapon of the cross. Okay. Um, this image, this kind of egg-shaped image, is actually in, in Christian art called the mandala. It's, a, it's, a, it's meant to be, uh, in art, a depiction of heaven meeting earth and the two colliding. Well, what do we teach? That in the, in the crucified and risen Christ and in the incarnate Christ, heaven and earth meet. So the, this, this contrast between heaven and earth is right there. 
Um, the other thing is he's taking his wounded hand and he's pointing down. What's he pointing at? Two things. Well, we see the tomb. He's pointing at the empty tomb, which is painted purple. Why is it painted purple? Purple's the color of Lent. And so we'll all wear purple. You know, Lent, you'll see all kinds of purple, vents, purple vestments at Lent. And this image will be covered, actually, all through Lent. Um, it'll have a, a canvas drop cloth in front of it that's painted with a, with a more Lenten image. So this becomes revealed again at the Easter Vigil. Okay? Um, he's pointing down not only to the empty tomb, but, and you should see this, when the Eucharist is elevated, like I lift it up, have you ever noticed? He's pointing right there, like here. Um, because the risen body of Christ is made manifest to his church through the Eucharist. Um, and so we, 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 we wanted to depict that artistically, um, which has been a really fun thing. The other thing I'd show you too is watch this. I want you to see if you can, I'm gonna take everything apart now, but drive the altar guild batty, but it's okay. I want you to see what I see. <laughs> so if you come up and take a look, you're welcome to come up and take a look. Just look down at, the, at that pattern, which is where the host sits. Look down and you'll see what I see um, when I'm celebrating. <laughs> it's really kind of a cool deal. To step back just a little bit. There you go. <laughs> so are you starting to see how, how this whole thing functions? The whole church functions theologically to show us things um, because it's through this engagement with beauty that we, we meet God. Um, um, and we see this all over the place. Um, we've only just begun to fill this church with beautiful objects. Uh, there's a lot more coming. We have, we have lots of plans for, I mean, more is more, so there's going to be more and more stuff coming in, uh, and, uh, and it's going to be constant. Um, but the reason is, if I can just say it, say it clearly, it's that um, the reason is that we, we believe that, that matter matters, um, that through engagement, because, listen, we're created things, and we actually experience uh, our commonality with other created things. Um, we come to know ourselves and we come to know God through, through the created order. Um, more so when we have, even more so when we have uh, parts of the created order that are set apart as holy, um, such that we, we interact in this, in this way. Um, okay. Any questions before we close just about how things are laid out or why they're done a certain way? No questions? Okay. Cool. Uh, you'll also note that the organ pipes are up in these casings. Did you ever notice that before? That's where all the organ pipes are, and it just creates this incredible um, uh, effect, sound effect, um, because uh, before amplification, everybody had to work really hard to make sure that people could hear. Um, and I was telling some students this earlier at Robbins Chapel where there's a curved apse. Um, 
they'll have these curved back parts in churches, and the reason is that if you're praying facing this direction, that curved apse will serve like an amplifier, and it will throw that sound back um, on the whole church so everybody can hear. Um, whereas, here, you can even see that here. 